hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's show, how do you redesign one of London's oldest and largest garden squares? It was really one of the first examples of a developer creating a spectacular green space in the heart of a development in order to drive value. It's no longer about, well, do you want a cafe here? But what do you really want your square to aspire to? And what is its role in the community and in the larger community? I think the really interesting thing about design is that you can achieve some extraordinary balances. It can be deep and immersive and rich, but it can also have an ornamental quality to it. Ahead of its 300th anniversary, London's Grosvenor Square is set for a makeover. But what are the challenges of taking on a project such as this? Well, today I'm joined by three guests. The architect tasked with the vision, the custodian responsible for the square, and one of the judges in the competition too. So join me and our panel as we discuss this week the future of Grosvenor Square in London and what lessons there are for other cities too. That's all coming up right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. So welcome to this week's episode. Grosvenor Square sits in the very heart of London, in the salubrious area of Mayfair. It's the second largest square in the city, with almost 2.5 hectares of lawns and greenery. Since it first opened to the public in 1726, the Grade 2 listed square has become home to presidents, foreign dignitaries, protests and even a Second World War blimp. Today, it's a cherished space, enjoyed by local residents, workers and visitors on a daily basis. So as the square gets ready for a makeover, we decided to talk to the people behind this decision to hear about what their vision is to turn it into one of London's most prominent public spaces. Today, I'm joined in the studio by three guests. Ed Green, who's the Associate Director at Grosvenor Britain and Ireland and is leading the project for the Grosvenor Square redevelopment. The architect, Anna Liu, who's the Director at Tonkin Liu Architecture Practice. Anna and her team won the competition to redesign the square. And also by Ed Eichen, who's the Head of Landscape and Horticulture at Wakehurst for Kew Gardens. Ed was also part of the panel who judged the competition and his expertise on all things green will surely be a valuable asset as the project starts. Welcome all to The Urbanist. Ed Green, perhaps we'll come to you first as the custodian of this space to talk about what the project actually is. What have you got your hands on here with the square and why did you decide it was actually time for change? Grosvenor Square sits at the heart of Mayfair. It was laid out in 1720. And Mayfair is a 100-acre estate that was built by the Duke of Westminster at the time. And Grosvenor's purpose now is to create commercial and social value. And investing in Grosvenor Square has the potential to deliver both and the potential to have a long-term positive impact on London. London's growing. There's increasing pressure on infrastructure. We recognise that our places need to work harder for London and more amenities, more opportunities, more sustainable places need to be created in an ever busy West End. For people around the world, that word Mayfair, it comes with lots of connotations. It's a very wealthy area. It's a very important part of London. For many years, it had the US Embassy at one end. They've now decamped and moved south of the river for all sorts of reasons, get more space for security. So Grosvenor Square is changing 
in itself. Are you trying to open this area up to all Londoners or is this still an amenity, a local amenity for the people who call Mayfair home? Well, I think it has to be both. I think that, you know, there's ever-increasing pressure on our green spaces and Grosvenor Square sits 100 yards from some really important places in London and it's currently not perhaps working as hard as it should to bring people to those green spaces or to itself. But at the same time, it's really important that the people who currently use it don't feel that they are negatively impacted by any sort of change. So we are working really hard to try and bring that community into the design process to make sure that, you know, what we create is great for them, but great for new visitors as well. Now, for radio, it's a bit complicated. We have two people around the table today, both called Ed. But my other guest, who's called Ed, is the head of landscape at Wakehurst. And you, you work with Kew Gardens, with the Royal Gardens out at Kew. You were brought on to help guide a competition to decide, and we're going to meet the winner in a second, <laughs> to decide what should happen to this square. What were the kinds of things that you wanted them to, Grosvenor and everybody involved, to think about when they reimagined what this extraordinary thing, what the London Garden Square should be in the future? I suppose the first thing that struck me was the absence of a pay barrier and the chance to bring some extraordinary quality to green space, so the chance to create a public good, something that could enrich lives that everybody could share. And I think in parallel to that, just being conscious of the pressure that our green spaces, our public green spaces are under in London, but across the UK cities, you know, ever decreasing budgets, very, very constrained windows for people to think creatively. So the chance to do something that actually with Grosvenor's imagination resources could be extraordinary, but could be for everybody. That was the, sort of the compelling thing I wanted to focus on. We should, as an international city, as the home of a very distinct style of horticulture in the UK, we should make something extraordinary in Grosvenor Square. There's almost no option. And I very quickly realised that that was a possibility. Now, we're in a time ahead of climate change, of debate about what public realms should be. There's so many kind of things to consider. And I know that you know when many of these gardens were laid out originally, and for many, many years to come, they were formal. They were very considered and careful in the way that they delivered. They were they repeated patterns. There was a format about them. We've moved into a world of like the high line of wild gardens. Yes. Is that something that you also wanted to be considered that, okay, are we going to be a bit more informal? Are we going to rethink the whole idea of what it means to plant a space out? Yeah, I think for me, Grosvenor Square is just big enough to create an immersive environment, a place where people can step in and briefly forget what was in their heads prior to walking into Grosvenor Square. So it's to utilise the space that we have to create something that probably is a little bit wilder, has a clear rhythm to it, perhaps that plays to our senses the desire to be in a, in a meadow or a, or a deep or broad landscape. And I think the really interesting thing about design is that you can achieve some extraordinary balances. It can be deep and immersive and rich, but it can also have an ornamental quality to it. Some of the very best wild landscapes appeal to our aesthetic sense. Some of the very best design landscapes evoke a sense of the wilds. And again, we've got the opportunity, the imagination, the resources to achieve some of those really kind of interesting, dramatic kind of tensions. Well, I'm very pleased to say that Anna Liu, who's here, is the winner of that competition where your company is. Tonkin Liu is the winner of the competition. 
so many companies around the world entered this, wanted to be part of this process. You won through. You've got the people here who helped you on that way. But tell us, what would you think was about your plans that made them successful? What was the heart of your ideas? I think it's maybe our approach. And we have this sort of mantra in the studio that we want to connect people to nature. And we're also storytellers. So we demonstrated how we might use these two approaches to redesign the square. And in terms of nature, I think, you know, there's sort of nature at a garden scale, but also what really excites us as architects is the different scales of nature. And more than ever, we have these amazing tools, uh, digital tools that allow us to see into nature, you know, microscopically and aerial film footage. So it means we have a far greater understanding of nature and including the sort of climate crisis we're experiencing. So as architects, we're actually excited about the era we live in and the potentials that some of these problems present to us, but the sort of moment to transform Grosvenor Square. So the square is you know, going to do lots of things. We've touched on here a little bit about you know, it as a, a natural landscape, bringing nature back into the city. But as an amenity, what kinds of things were you considering? That is it a place for play? Is it a place for people to go and have lunch? How did you want to activate the space, as it were? I like to think that there's a space for everyone there. I mean, I think the beauty of living in the city is that there's diversity and you come next to someone who's very different to you. So our experience from having designed many public realms is that throughout the day, there's something for everyone. So it should never feel like a certain tribe is dominating and there should be some interest in the garden and the space that's there. From a Grosvenor point of view, we're hearing here about storytelling and about community involvement. What did storytelling mean to you when you were beginning to kind of like judge all of the people who had entered the competition? I mean, it was very clear to us when we started kind of engaging with Anna and Mike that the way they were approaching the project was conceptually very unique. It was they were considering every element as a whole, the ecology of the square as a system, people's interaction with the square as part of that ecology and I guess that really excited us the the ability for us to look at all those different uses of the square and I guess those competing contrasts that exist in how a public space is used and how actually they could be reconciled and you don't necessarily have to have either you can have both and they might be in different areas or at different times or there's an opportunity to create an urban green space that could be a, a new way of thinking about how these places operate. Just tell me again on the Grosvenor side, when you talk to communities around the square who wanted to be involved, again, when something has been maybe not very successful, but kind of private and a bit of a secret, and when you begin to raise the idea that it should be a bigger public amenity, and we're talking about the square, which although embedded in Mayfair, it's a few hundred metres from Oxford Street and the, the throngs that are there. Did that take some persuading in certain parts to say, look, we need to share this a bit more. I think, you know, we're at the very beginning of this process and I'm sure there are, you know, the last thing we want to create is Oxford Street in the middle of Grosvenor Square. But, you know, I think it, it is a big challenge. And, you know, you talk to people in the community and I think everyone's very accepting of the idea of change because what's there is not good enough. You know, you really have grass, a holly hedge, some trees of which about 90% are, are one species. And, you know, this is not a biodiverse landscape. It doesn't facilitate different sorts of nesting birds, different animals or insects. And actually, you know, I think it's very easy to have that conversation about how a place should be better. 
from an ecological perspective, how you then balance that with, as you say, the concerns that people understandably have about what has been a very quiet space becoming potentially much more densely populated is a real challenge and one that we are kind of at the beginning of a journey of understanding how to speak to those people and how to ensure that we don't negatively impact their experience. And when you think about landscape, just tell me what would be your markers for Anna's project being a success? Are we talking about on your side, are you going to be counting that biodiversity, you know, the, how the, the actual kind of nature changes there? Yeah, there's a number of things which a really effective green space can bring to a city. So some quite environmental factors like light management, you know, bringing shade on the hottest days, mitigating pollution. Trees and shrubs can be very, very effective at creating a cleaner air zone. Also the way water hits the square, you know, is very pertinent at the moment as we have incessant rain really effective green spaces can absorb water and percolate it into the drains. So those are the more environmental elements. It would also be fascinating to see the degree to which biodiversity increases, but also the degree to which people's happiness increases. The really effective green spaces do improve people's well-being and potentially increase and improve physical health. You know, suddenly, if you've got an amazing route to work on foot, which goes through Grosvenor Square, perhaps you stop taking the cab or going on the underground, you physically walk to your site. And I know this is a, a huge and unintended consequence of the High Line is far more people are walking to work now. It's a mixture of kind of qualitative, aesthetic, but also environmental things that I'd love to see improve. Anna, those are some potential kind of wins that we're saying that they can be kind of unintended consequences and good ones. But did you begin to think of that throughout your design process, how you could make this a place that was more navigable by people on foot? Did you wonder about how you team up with Grosvenor and the council maybe to talk about the traffic and and how it fits the nature of the square, how it fits into the whole neighbourhood. Were you already thinking about these things at the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. Um, If a place is legible, then it makes people connect it to another place. And in doing so, you realise the distance from A to B is actually quite short. So you would end up walking rather than going on transport or taking a cab. So legibility and character, a sense of quality about the space that will attract people there even when they're not passing through so there's a reason to go there there's some sort of identity also for the local community to really say this is our square and it's a quintessential London square but it's a bit bigger and it has more of the character of a park but it's uniquely it can only be in Grosvenor Square. And just tell me again when you're you're making this park I mean we touched on the the notion of the, the climate is changing and the plants we have and the way that we have to look after these things. Are you trying to create a space that is low on upkeep as well at the beginning? Because many of the parks and gardens we have in London have had to change their nature or are struggling because summers are drier and hotter and winter's more unpredictable. Did you think about all of this in the whole kind of process of designing the space? We talked about sort of guardians rather than maintenance crews. So part of the community that would come on board and would love to have a a garden. But also it's not just maintenance, but future-proofing the garden design. I mean, as architects, we're, you know, we never foresaw that we'd be designing for sort of 50-year storms and 100-year storms. But for the garden also to imagine that there will be drier spells and much wetter spells. On the Grosvenor website, you have an amazing picture of what the garden looked like 300 years ago, because it is extraordinary. This is all happening exactly 300 years ago. 
There's some quite appealing things about that design from 300 years ago. There's no cars whizzing around the edge. It's much more open. There only seems to be a a kind of picket fence around the oval central, much more open to the environment. Again, when you began to strip away the years of change there and what the the square had become, did you look back at the the very beginning of the story and what it had meant to London? Because, as you say, it was an extraordinary asset when it first opened. I mean, absolutely. The history of Grosvenor Square is amazing. It was really one of the first examples of a developer creating a spectacular green space in the heart of a development in order to drive value. You know, it was designed to be the biggest and best garden square in in London, really, in order to put Mayfair on the map when it was first designed and built as a new build estate, really. But over time, it's developed and it's changed and it's had three or four different kind of manifestations until... It was in 1946 when it really, really changed and became public for the first time, and that's an amazing thing. Unfortunately, what kind of came with that was it lost its, it really its heart. It was always about a celebration of horticulture in the city and bringing a piece of the countryside into the city, which at the time was groundbreaking back in 1720. But, you know, in 1946, it became really about memorial and about the war, and those memorials have proliferated and more and more Americana, which is a really important part of the square and we're definitely not seeking to turn our back on it, but we want to sort of peel back the layers and look back to that celebration of horticulture. Just on that, just tell me, as a landlord who's had, the property owner who's had this square for so long, is there a changing nature in what you think of as being the legacy for the estate, what your intention is for the city and for London? Because in the past, many of these great estates within the city have kind of been a little bit hunkered down, looked after their neighbourhoods and not thought of themselves as fully London kind of assets. Do you think that your role is changing and is modernising with the city as well then? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm not sure if it's... Perhaps it was always our role, but we weren't as aware of it as we should have been. And that, you know, as I think one of our core purposes on Grosvenor's London Estate is to make sure that we are delivering what is needed for an ever-increasingly used West End and that happens in all sections, really. And, you know, there's an increasing need for office space. And, and how do you make sure that Mayfair continues to be a highly desirable place for retailers, office workers, residents, as more and more places within London catch up? I looked at lots of the, the things you've talked about in the past about garden design and and its role and challenging people a little bit and being fun and not always being safe. Again, when we come to the the competition, there were a lot of people who entered this. What were some of the things that you looked to as benchmarks around? Well, you, you mentioned the High Line. Does that have lessons? It's a very long linear park here. We're talking about something very different. It's a space where people tend to walk from one end to the other. Here you're talking about a space where people should probably stop and dwell more. Mm-hmm. But were there benchmarks around the world that you thought were interesting at this time to look at when we think about the future of the Garden Square? Yeah, I suppose an obvious one and a less obvious one. So people will always cite Singapore. But for me, what I really resonate with in terms of Singapore is the connectivity that's established across the city. Every green space has a greater role. There's the nature ways, the way that the cities have green corridors within them. Each connects to a green space. There's a sense of the whole city working in a coordinated and coherent manner to deliver high-quality green space across the city. So it's a really obvious one to cite. They have incredible resources. There's a sort of political singularity which allows that to be delivered. But the second one is Nantes in western France, where there's actually a set of citizen principles all based around access to green space. Uh, you should never be more than a kind of 500 metres from a green space. 
they directly employ all of the horticulturists and arborists that work across the city. So again, there's a real coherence to how the city is presented. There's individual spectacles, you know, an incredible botanic garden. You will find ton bag planters placed on a bare street corner filled with plants. And then there's the impact it has on residents. Everybody has a window box or cultivates their green space in a specific way. And that's a really cultural thing that's kind of just become imbued in that city. And take us through what happens next because you've won the competition but you need to get planning permission there's all sorts of consents that have to be put in place so how long one before we'll actually see you in there guiding the diggers and seeing the work done and how many kind of more thought processes are there to go through for you because there isn't a published printed design on your website i notice as yet so i presume there's still many elements that you're considering how they'll come together Yeah, so we've come up with a set of principles and quite simple stories that we think could develop and evolve with the communities now involved. And I guess it's design is always a sort of iterative process that takes on board the complexities and the different needs of the site as well as the community. So in the most ideal scenario, Ed... We are really mindful that, you know, we, through lots of work and consultation, developed a brief that we asked teams to respond to. And because of the nature of the competition, those schemes are developed not in isolation, but without, you know, there's a really important component of design and that's engagement. And we're really mindful that we haven't really done enough of that yet. So I think we are kind of going back to first principles and basically spending this year really seeking active community participation in the design process and almost going back to not quite square one but close to it to make sure that we're developing something that you know it's a public square that the public are involved in and therefore hopefully will ultimately use <laughs> so anna you have these guiding principles and you now have this consultation process that goes on so are you trying to, in your mind, not make a, too much of a detailed drawing of how you think it's going to look? Or is it kind of coming together and you, you now you need to go out and persuade people that this is going to be beneficial for them? How fixed in your mind do you think at this point is what you want that square to look like? It talked about the sort of engagement. And for us, it's sort of engaging locally, engaging London-wide, and as you said, the sort of global issues. And I think... In that conversation, many people will sort of come together. Uh, having said that, we do need to show people something to inspire some conversation. So I think expecting them to sort of participate and sort of give us quite solid feedback would mean inspiring them and taking them to a kind of different level. So it's no longer about, well, do you want a cafe here? But what do you really want your square to aspire to? And what is its role in the community and in the larger community? Can I just ask you also, all three of you, in a way, you know, the, I guess the strangest piece of history, which you've kind of adopted, which I think is great, is that it was the home of the Grosvenor riots against the Vietnam War. All these people came there. It has been a gathering space for all sorts of things. And as you point out, in the Second World War, a blimp came down there. Amazing things have happened there. Does that come into the process at all, thinking it's got this other bit of history, this kind of radical history and this more intriguing history that should be celebrated in the kind of storytelling that you're doing, Anna? Maybe you could start. Yeah, so the history and the the spirit of a place is always there, no matter what you add to it. And I think the beauty of Grosvenor Square is it's a garden, but the idea of garden has evolved, you know, so it's not 
just garden in the kind of very passive sense, but an, an immersive and participatory uh, garden. So, yes, it is always going to be quite a generous gathering place. And I suppose it just sort of takes on board these events that occur in that space. Ed, coming back to you as a judge of the competition, we're talking here about the landscape and the nature and things. But did you feel that there should be a kind of, not hard landscape, but almost like a built element to it as well? You know, How does it plug into the rest of the city? Is it a place for dining? Is it a place for drinking? You know, when we go to many of the squares, when we travel as a company around the world, when you go to somewhere like Lisbon, every town square has a kind of little kiosk where you can get a glass of wine, you can buy a newspaper. And you come to many of London's squares, and for various reasons, they're a little bit dead and soulless you you can go there and you can Mm. sit there but there's we've been very slow to activate them as spaces where you can do much else you can't buy anything you can't do anything do you think that has a part in in how we reimagine these squares it has to i think all public spaces have to always balance kind of amenity and beauty it's inevitable and if you're popular you've got to somehow anticipate how all those feet are going to interact with that space and how people want to use it i do go back to the size thing you know for me Grosvenor Square is big enough to pull off one really powerful kind of immersive act well and you shouldn't sacrifice too much planting space because you will then lose that immersive power. But I think the way Grosvenor Square is laid out at the moment, so dominated by the roads, it's easy to ignore the corners, the roles that the corners have. And we've talked a lot about how we bring in even the kind of periphery of the square so it all kind of plays a function and perhaps some of the the harder kind of commercial functions can sit a little bit on the edges and allow the square itself to be a piece of purer design, perhaps. And from the Grosvenor point of view, are you trying to plug this into other developments and projects you have going on around the square as well? I mean, so we, we own very little on the square now, but it still sits at the heart of the estate. And, you know, I think that what we hope is that Grosvenor Square will be an anchor for a whole programme of greening initiatives, not just by us, but actually I think, you know, it would be a pretty odd decision to take on a project of this scale and only focus on on it itself. So the green corridors that stretch out, you know, we sit in a really strategic location environmentally between Hyde Park and, and the rest of the West End and those other green spaces. But, you know, we've been more and more interested in is there a role for Grosvenor Square as as actually a more of a hub in a growing kind of network of education, of inspiration, trying to get more people involved in ecology and how important it is within the urban environment. And Alan, just tell me, you are you happy about what's happening in London? Do you feel confident when projects like this do come up and are, are ambitious in their aim? It feels like a tipping point for every city that they've got to consider how they use their green spaces and, as you said, how they use them for cooling the city and the kinds of plants we use. Not just in this conversation, I'm sure you're plugged in in the landscape work you do to all sorts of things happening in London. Do you think this city is beginning to move in a good direction with that debate? Absolutely. I think councils are very much part of the dialogues with private developers and and they're learning that joining forces and having this sort of similar remit of creating green spaces and improving the environment in the city is ultimately the way forward. So I think it's absolutely a fantastic moment for London because it is so unique and so much is expected of London to be the sort of pioneer and the leaders in answering certain global issues. So I think it's a really exciting moment. I'm confident that we can, with all the team and the expertise and and particularly a really good brief, we can deliver something amazing. Perhaps we could just go around the table and maybe you could all just give us one or two things you think 
are exciting about this project and important about the project. And, and maybe from the judging point of view as well, you can just tell us what one or two of the things that if we look back in five, six years' time and, and it's completed, do you think, okay, this will have been a success if this has happened? What are one or two of the things that are important for you with this project? I suppose a slightly geeky success factor would be <laughs> that some of the greater ambitions around establishing novel plant communities to deliver an aesthetic purpose, that they've actually they've worked we followed the right processes and established a thriving community of plants really using their own kind of ecological forces to survive. That would be, that would be a big <laughs> thing for me. But the big thing for me with my kind of professional hat on is just making horticulture exciting, getting everybody talking about plants and gardens, people who didn't think they cared at all about plants just want to be there because it's beautiful. Um, you, uh, when you look back in a few years' time and it's all done and dusted, what would be the things that you think, OK, that's important, that's important for London that we did this? Something that is spectacularly beautiful and intimate and contemplative and could only be in Grosvenor Square. And ahead, finally, for yourself, as, as, as the person who's going to be paying the bills, I guess, and overseeing the whole process, what's going to make you a happy man at the end of this? It actually probably goes back to that inspiration point, similar to Ed, that actually if we can create something that gets people to think about green space in a different way, and perhaps that starts in London and goes far beyond, and actually we create something that people look at and say, that's what good looks like for an urban green space. Well, thank you so much for coming in to talk to us. Look, this is an important project for London, but I hope that people who are listening around the world understand there's lots of ideas and thoughts here that they can use to help their cities too, to help you raise the bar. And anyone who's keen to keep up with the project can visit the website grosvenor.com. That was Ed Green, Ed Eichen and Anna Liu. And thank you to all of them for joining us. And that's all for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Rebello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out of this week's episode, here's Pedro Samp with Mayfair Dream. Thank you for listening, city lovers. See the light tonight in the sky And you be mine to find Mayfair Dream A father